0: Tony Mativi, former federal prosecutor, is a Republican candidate for Kansas Attorney General. He's going to be part of an interesting 2022 GOP primary with former Secretary of State Chris Kobach of Lecompton and State Senator Kelly Warren of Leawood. Mr. Mativi, welcome to the Kansas Reflector. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time out of your, your day, your campaign. So you're running uh, to replace Attorney General Derek Schmidt,
1: who is seeking the GOP nomination for governor. Why you and why now? So, uh, Tim, I'm running for Attorney General for four reasons, and I'll tell you the reasons, and I hope that as we talk this afternoon you'll let me explain each of them a little bit. Uh, The first reason I'm running for Kansas Attorney General is because the citizens of this state want their chief law enforcement official to actually be a law enforcement official. Uh, The second reason I'm running for Kansas Attorney General is because the citizens of this state want an Attorney General who can stand up in a courtroom and who can argue on their behalf competently, confidently, and persuasively. Whether that's pushing back against federal overreach or forcing the government to enforce the law as it's written, I think the citizens want an experienced litigator arguing on their behalf. I'm running for Kansas Attorney General because at the same time that I am and that my office is vigorously protecting and defending the interests of the citizens of this state in any courtroom across this state and across the country, I can be a steady hand on the rudder of that office. I have the experience that will help me keep that office running well. And finally, I'm running for Kansas Attorney General because I have a passion for criminal justice issues and for national security issues, and I know through having worked in that office and having worked in the field of criminal justice for decades that the Attorney General can do a lot of good for Kansans in those areas. So. In a nutshell, that's why I'm running.
0: Okay, good. Let's give people a bit of your professional background. I think you worked in the AG's office. I did. Shawnee County uh, DA. Yes. And um, graduated from
1: Washburn. Tell us first, where do you work right now? You've retired from the Justice Department. We'll get to that. But where do you work now? I retired from the Justice Department in November, and I took a job for a healthcare company. What do they do? They do on-site medical care. So before I went to law school, I was a paramedic. Okay. And so that I've sort of come full circle, and I'm back working in healthcare for um, a, a company that started out as a small business and has really grown and developed doing on-site medical care, um, taking care of our clients' employees at the worksite. So just give me an example of that. Every target distribution plant in the country has a MedCorp clinic in it. Okay. Uh, every Hormel packing plant in the country has a, has a MedCorp clinic in it. Uh, we do a lot of work in the entertainment industry. Well, I guess it makes a lot more sense to outsource
0: that stuff. Right. Um, all right. So other bits about your, your professional background. Just kind of give us a quick hit there.
1: Sure. So um, I was a paramedic before law school. Uh, I came to Topeka in 1991 to go to Washburn. Uh, the summer after my first year of law school, I interned in the DA's office, and I knew by the end of the first week, that that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I started in the DA.'s office in Topeka, actually during my third year of law school, started mm-hmm. prosecuting traffic offenses, mm-hmm. um, was offered a job there after graduation, worked there for a couple of years, and then when my mentor left the DA's office and went to the A.G.'s office, he brought me with him. So I worked in the Kansas Attorney General's office for a couple of years until I was hired by the Department of Justice, and then I worked there for 22 years until I retired less than a year ago.
0: At Justice, did you mostly stay in Kansas and do cases, or did you go out and about?
1: So when I started with the Justice Department, initially it was under a drug grant. So uh, technically, I was a state employee for about the first year and a half. I was what's called a special assistant U.S. attorney, and there were two of us, and we were there specifically to prosecute meth lab cases. This was back in the late 90s when Kansas had a huge meth lab problem, right? Yep. And so uh, I I worked for— year and a half or so in that capacity, uh, got hired into a full-time position, and my specialty, the first several years I was there, became uh, prosecuting complex drug organizations and all of the things that went along with that, whether it was money laundering, racketeering, violence, whatever. Um, But I ended up doing a number of cases against complex organizations that were based in Los Angeles or San Diego or Houston or El Paso or even Vancouver. Um, In 2007... DOJ asked for volunteers with complex case experience to go to Iraq and work on the war crimes trials. So I volunteered for that, and I ended up going to Baghdad for six months back in 2007. And my role primarily was to help four Iraqi prosecutors bring to trial uh, the 1991 Intifada uprising case. So when I got there in March of '07, Saddam had been tried, convicted, and executed. And the lead defendant in our case was Saddam's cousin, Ali Hassan al-Majid. They call him Chemical Ali. And so we we prosecuted Chemical Ali and a dozen other members of Saddam's regime for the war crimes and atrocities in the 1991 uh, uprising in the Basra province.
0: Were they executed?
1: Uh, Chemical Ali was. That's right. Um, I came back from that, came back to the district of Kansas and started doing national security cases and in late 2008 doj again asked for volunteers this time to go work on some of the guantanamo detainee cases the deal was come out for take a one-year assignment come out for a year work on one of what's called the non-high-value detainees your average guantanamo Mm -hmm. um, detainee and that was attractive to me for a couple of reasons one it was professionally very attractive and then at the time my wife and i had grade school aged kids And we wanted to take them to D.C. for a year and expose them to the educational and cultural opportunities out there.
0: Fascinating place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So so I again, I raised my hand. I volunteered. I was selected. And the first day when I showed up, I sat down with my supervisor and he said, I know you signed up for one of the non HVD cases, but it just so happens that we have an opening on the USS Cole prosecution team. Would you be willing to spend your year doing that instead of a non-high-value detainee? Mm-hmm. That was kind of a no-brainer. So I joined the coal team, and at the time, it was me and an Army colonel and a Navy captain and two FBI agents and two NCIS agents. That was the team. And after six months, the Army colonel rotated out, and the chief prosecutor came to me and asked if I would be willing to take over as the lead prosecutor on the coal case. And I did, but that dramatically changed the nature of my assignment. So instead of one year, I ended up staying for almost five years. And four, four years of it or more, I was the, the chief prosecutor on that capital case before a military commission down at Guantanamo Bay. So okay. I, I returned from that in 2013. And again, uh, I resumed doing national security cases in Kansas. And it just so happened that between about 2014 and 2020, when I retired, we had a, a number of high-profile pro, high uh, very significant national security cases here in Kansas. We had the Lowen case, we had the Booker case, uh, we had the Garden City militia case, uh, and then we had, uh, we started uh, doing some really interesting work under what was called the Attorney General's China Initiative. Well, uh, I,
0: one of the things I thought about about those three Kansas cases, domestic terrorism cases, mm-hmm. um, do you think the Kansas AG should be more concerned about that kind of homegrown activity? Seems to come out of nowhere, but we now might have a better idea that there's some folks out there.
1: There are some folks out there, and and right now it's the federal government that's paying most of the attention to those groups. I think that is an area where the attorney general can have a great deal of involvement in keeping Kansans Kansans safe. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's more of that kind of activity than the general public knows about. Um, I, I don't think it's an issue that's on a lot of people's radar unless they're well inside law enforcement. But f- for those folks that pay attention to it, um, it's problematic. And I think the attorney general can help a lot in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One crackpot can do <clears throat> a lot of damage. You bet. And, and so, you know, the Garden City case that I prosecuted, w- w- a number of the witnesses that we put on were state troopers and a KBI agent all of whom were very helpful in the investigation. They worked very closely with the FBI. You know, law enforcement is not compartmentalized the the way oftentimes people think it is. It's not just the Bureau. Uh, To be effective in law enforcement, you have to work well with others. There's a force multiplier there. And I've spent my career in law enforcement emphasizing to people that I work with that we have to work well together because we're more effective that way. Um. Okay, well, let's talk about
0: some of the, the issues, and there are many that come up before the Attorney General. I mean, he can be asked for a non-binding legal opinion on, oh, he just put one out the other day about whether Eudora, how they were supposed to uh, select their library board per, uh, members. So there's all kinds of issues that come before the Attorney General, uh, but some that seem are repetitive, and there's a lot of litigation. Let's just start with abortion. You think you describe yourself as a pro-life person? Do you want to just explain to voters what you mean
1: by that? Uh, what I mean is that I am um, a lifelong Catholic um, uh, and I am pro-life. I don't, I don't know any better way to say it. You know, there's people that, uh, well, we have a huge
0: constitutional amendment that's gonna be on the ballot uh, in 20, August of 2022 that would basically be pushback against the Kansas Supreme Court which dug into the Bill of Rights of our Constitution and found uh, suitable footing to say that women had a right to abortion that possibly goes beyond Roe,
1: even. But do you believe the amendment is warranted? I have a great deal of respect for the justices on the Kansas Supreme Court. They're is more than one of those justices who I tried cases in front of as a young DA. And I I have great respect for, I had great respect for them as judges, and I have great respect for them as justices. I disagree with them on this issue, Mm -hmm. and I support the ballot amendment.
0: Okay. Yeah, it's definitely a complex case, and and certainly an emotional and political one. Okay. The death penalty has come up numerous times, and I asked the current AG about this a couple weeks ago, and he's been on the podcast several times. And uh, he, he says I ask him about it too much. But uh, I'm just kind of curious, the, the, the death penalty, we've had it for a number of years. There's 10 dozen uh, men who have been sentenced uh, to death. Nobody's been subject to that uh, final penalty. What do you think about the death penalty generally?
1: Generally speaking, I think I'm a supporter of the death penalty under the right circumstances. To, to let me expand just a little bit. I think the human nature for goodness makes the death penalty tragic. I think the human nature for evil makes the death penalty necessary. So I'm not gonna say that, look, I just blanketly support application of the death penalty under all circumstances because I think there have to be the right circumstances. But I'm glad you brought it up because it's an important part of the AG's job. And people can talk in the abstract about the death penalty, and everybody is entitled to their voice, but there's no other candidate in the race that's handled a death penalty case like I have. There's no other candidate in the race who has made those difficult decisions or made those difficult arguments. There's. I sat on the US Attorney General's Death Penalty Case Review Committee for a term. I was one of a group of seasoned DOJ prosecutors from across the country who advised the Attorney General through this committee on when and whether to seek the death penalty. Um, You can talk in the abstract about the death penalty, but until you're the person that has to make the difficult decisions, when you're that person, those abstracts and those ideas clench themselves into a fist and they punch you in the solar plexus. And I think that that is an important part of this job. I think having the background that I have is another one of those things that uniquely qualifies me for this position.
0: Mm-hmm. The country seems to be in a bit of uh, f- uh, flexing on this issue. Some states have, have just um, done away with the death penalty. They have. Uh, so the country is divided on this. It's just, to me, interesting that the state spends millions of dollars uh, on appeals and everything else on these, on these capital punishment cases but doesn't execute anyone and is probably not going to do so for five, ten years. I mean, it's a never-ending process.
1: It's it's a tough issue, and every, every you know part of the nature of who we are as a country is that everybody should have a voice, especially a voice in whether we as a society sanction or tolerate things like the death penalty, right? Like a ab- like abortion. Um, it, that having been said. Um, you're right. It's a difficult issue, and, and people have very strong views on either side. I happen to come down very solidly on the side that that should be a tool that is available to the state, that prosecutors should have at their disposal to use under appropriate circumstances.
0: Okay. There's, uh, you've also described yourself as an uh, inherent of the Second Amendment. It's good that you're following the Constitution, but uh, what that means in practice could be a different thing. Uh, tell us what you think about the uh, uh, Second Amendment.
1: I, I uh, you're right, I've described myself as pro-Second Amendment. I am a lifelong hunter. Um, I, I own mm-hmm. firearms. I have friends on the East Coast who think that's foolishness on my part, right? They grow, but they grew up in a different society. Mm-hmm. Um, we live in a part of the country where those rights are ingrained in us, and, and I believe in them very strongly. Um, so again, I'm, I'm one of those candidates who comes down very strongly on the side of this is a part of who we are as a society and my job as Attorney General be, will be to help protect those rights.
0: One of the most prominent areas for which this amend, uh, the Second Amendment comes into play is when we talk about concealed carry right. and the laws that Kansas creates uh, for that. So a number of years ago, Kansas adopted a concealed carry statute that required people to get a permit they had to take some training, Uh, maybe it's a day-long thing, but they at least had to have have some familiarity with a firearm and pay the fee and and get a license. Well, that uh, was viewed as a big waste of time by the people in the legislature that adopted so-called constitutional conceal, which has left us with a law that says no permit, no training, don't even have to own the gun. You can borrow it from your neighbor. Not know how it works, but you can run around the state with a hidden firearm in your waist. And to me, uh, you know, I'm not going to take anybody's gun away, but I
1: sure would wish they had some sense of how it worked. You know, I I wish they did too. But the fact of the matter is the gun in somebody's glove box isn't doing anyone else any harm. If you take that gun out of the glove box and you use it for something, you're going to be held accountable for the judgment that you exercise, regardless of whether it's concealed carry permit or constitutional concealed carry, right? If you use that weapon, you're going to be held accountable for the judgment that you exercise in Mm -hmm. using it. And under our laws, I'm okay with that.
0: Another thing about uh, firearms, the United States does not let people uh, carry bazookas, okay? So, <clears throat> what if what if so we've decided that weapon is off the board? Why can't we decide that assault rifles with uh, you know heavy magazines can't be off the board too? But we, still, that to me still protects people's right to to carry firearms,
1: uh, just not that particular type, like a bazooka or a tank. So we agree that a bazooka in a tank is off limits, right? (laughs) Probably not a good idea. Um, Short of that, we do have the ability, Tim, to to say that. We do, as a society, have the ability to legislate that. Mm -hmm. And how it's legislated in Kansas is going to be very different from how it's legislated in California. And in my view, that's okay. That's the way that it Mm -hmm. should be. Our citizens should have the opportunity to weigh in on what they think should be legal and illegal in their state.
0: Another case that becomes before the uh, the state is school finance. There's been very powerful uh, litigation and court decisions. Um, do you think Do you think the court system overreaches by pressuring the legislators, the appropriators, to um, <clears throat> spend too much on schools or spend a
1: bunch of money on schools? You know what I mean. That balance of power. Right. So so. You know, generally speaking, with I believe very strongly in checks and balances. And that comes into play a lot of times when the attorney general is deciding on an issue, right? When mm-hmm. the legislature passes a law, it's the attorney general's job to defend that law. I, I believe that. I believe in that role. And I'm ready to take on that responsibility. Yeah,
0: I've seen uh, Derek Schmidt, the current attorney general. Uh, it was, I think it was actually a, a, a bill they were working on in school finance. And he was grimacing repeatedly because uh, he was trying to get them off a ledge. They were going to push some element of the bill that he was basically advising them was a bad idea, but he was very tender about it. Uh, So I just remember that balancing act that AG offering advice to the legislative branch uh, provided. So there's executive authority issues that have come up during the COVID pandemic. Legislature has tried really hard in the past year and a half to undercut Laura Kelly's uh, authority uh, to issue executive orders and other mandates. So what do you come down on, on masking and vaccinations and private business versus government? Uh, uh,
1: this is a really tough time in our society, right? Un- unprecedented in my generation. And I'm a pretty mm-hmm. old guy. Um, I think the government has an interest in these things, but the government isn't our nanny. So the way I look at it is I'm vaccinated. I got vaccinated as soon as I can get vaccinated. I don't believe the government has the right to tell me to get vaccinated, okay? I will wear my mask when there are situations that I think it's appropriate for me to wear my mask. I don't think it's the government's job to tell me when to do it. I think that's part of being an American is we are allowed to control our own destiny and we trust our citizens to exercise their own judgment in doing that. So that's where I come down on those issues.
0: Yeah, and I could see that if if we all lived in a little bubble somewhere. Uh but but and there's gotta be settings, you know, hospitals, it's a private business. They mandate masks when you walk into a hospital. Uh the, the thing I'm wondering about is <clears throat> given the scope of the pandemic, where's the line uh that could be established between patriotism that says uh, I don't want to wear a mask if told by the government. I don't want to be vaccinated uh, if told by the government. But where does where does it become patriotic to wear a mask and patriotic to get a vaccine? You know, what level of
1: illness, death, catastrophe do we need before we reach that line? I'm a little nervous about venturing down the road of patriotism on that argument. And here's why. Um, you and I talked. Just very briefly, and I hope we can talk some more about the case that I prosecuted in Garden City. And for those that aren't familiar with it, that was three Southwest Kansas militia members who didn't believe that the U.S. government was adequately enforcing the immigration laws. And Mm -hmm. so they decided to take matters into their own hands by sending a message to the government. And the way they chose to send that message was they plotted together to blow up an apartment building in Garden City that was inhabited exclusively by Somali Muslim refugees. It was the folks that were working at the packing plant in Garden City. And and the problem that I have with this sort of patriotism argument is those individuals viewed themselves as patriots. But in my view, and I think in the court's view and under the view of the law, they were the opposite of patriots, right? They were attacking people because of their religion. They were discriminating against them, telling them they couldn't live in a certain place because of who they worshipped and how they worshipped and where they worshipped. And in their view, they were patriots. And, and that's the difficulty that I have saying, well, it's patriotism. You should do this mm-hmm. for patriotism, right? We have values as Americans, and my values as an American are I'm going to do what I think is the right thing, and it's not the government's place in, su- in, a, in an area like vaccinations or masking to tell me what to do.
0: Yeah, okay, all right, all right. So I think you've spoken in the past, other venues, where perhaps you have a sense that President Joe Biden has overreached.
1: Uh, could you explain what you mean by that? Sure, Let, I mean- And the role
0: of an attorney general in addressing that. Yeah, let's yeah.
1: use yesterday as an example, the moratorium on, on evictions. The, the president admitted when he did that, that it was illegal. He admitted when he did it, that it was outside of his authority. In my view, that's a problem, right? Now, when that impacts Kansas businesses, that's where, again, in my view, the attorney general has not just the ability to step in, but the obligation to step in. You know, an, another is, I, I think there's a legitimate question about whether this administration has stopped enforcing immigration laws. When that comes to the point of harming Kansans or Kansan, Kaz, Kansas business interests. I think the attorney general should be evaluating whether to step up and step in on behalf of the citizens of Kansas. Mm -hmm. I think there will be times where this next attorney general will have to make a decision about, is the federal government overreaching? You know, is designating the lesser prairie chicken permissible, under federal law, right? And, and there may be listeners who don't understand the significance of that. But, but if something like that happens, it's happened in the past. And the implications for Kansas oil and gas, for Kansas wind energy, for Kansas agriculture, okay, designating an endangered species has a profound impact on Kansas business interests.
0: Our personal property
1: rights. Absolutely. My land. Right. And so if, if, you're that, if you're that farmer in western Kansas, or you're that small independent oil company in western Kansas, and the federal government arbitrarily makes a designation that decimates your business, you're going to hope that you have an attorney general who will step up and defend your rights. And that's the attorney general I guess, that I want to be.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, unless those businesses are in fact wiping out uh, an animal here that 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 maybe we need for biodiversity.
1: Sure. I mean, that they're culpable. Right, if if that's the case, sure.
0: You worked in the Justice Department, and it was placed under unusual pressure by, at least publicly known, by President Donald Trump. Where do you think the Justice Department is after being there a long time? You kind of know the culture and how things work and whether people are shielded from politics. I mean, where did President Trump leave the Justice Department?
1: So as a line prosecutor for 22 years, I can honestly and candidly tell you that I never felt political pressure on a daily basis. And in my view, that's the role of the U.S. attorney is to shield the line prosecutors from political pressure.
0: U.S. attorney, the system is that every state has a at least one US attorney, right. right?
1: Every federal judicial district has a US attorney. Okay. So the district of so the state of Kansas is one judicial district. We have one US attorney. The state of Missouri is two, okay. eastern and western, Got right? it. Um, but the way the justice department is set up is m- the majority of the I think there's about 5000 now assistant U.S. attorneys work under a US attorney. Mm-hmm. And it's that's a political appointment. Mm-hmm. But in my view, the, the role of the US attorney is to shield the line prosecutors from the politics. Okay. Um, I, I never felt political pressure as a line prosecutor within DOJ. And I'm I'm going to use that Garden City case again as an example, and I hope you don't get tired of me doing this. No, but it's I fine. think it's a great illustration. Yeah. Those guys, by the way, got 25, 30-year sentences, right? One of them got 25, one got 26, and one got 30. Yeah, they'll be there a while. They will be there a while. Um, During jury selection, we were screening for folks who had a negative impression of the FBI. And the reason Mm -hmm. that we were doing that is the president was tweeting at the time about the FBI. Right. I mean, this was during the whole Comey, McCabe dust up in D.C. And one of the questions that we asked the jurors was, do you ha- do you have feelings about the Bureau and are they favorable, unfavorable or neutral? And, and we were looking for folks who were susceptible to you know, lit- reading those tweets and as a result being unfavorably um, predisposed toward those agents. Yeah. And and what we found as we screened for this was our jurors were really able to distinguish between the line agents and what was happening in Washington. Mm. And I, th- I think that's where good Kansas common sense comes into play. Um, there may be politic, there are unquestionably politics going on in Washington, that's why it exists, right? but you, you don't see it work its way down to the field to the line level to the field level mm-hmm. that's that's been my experience with DOJ and certainly that's what we saw with the FBI and our fortunately for us our jurors saw that in that case
0: yeah i think that's important if some of those obviously those top level people are political appointees in washington anyway right and uh, but they need to absorb a lot of that stuff and so keep it away from the other attorneys all right, Mr. Mativi, before we close here, I wonder if you would be so kind as to just pretend we're at a chamber commerce function here in Topeka and uh, just get, offer a concluding thought. How would that be?
1: Well, before we get to that, okay, go ahead. Tim, you promised me that I could talk a little bit about the four reasons that I'm running yeah. and you'd let me explain. Right. Do you mind if I do that? No, go ahead. Um, I told you the first reason I'm running for Kansas Attorney General is because the citizens of the state want their chief law enforcement official to actually be a law enforcement official. Mm -hmm. I've mentioned to you today, and I'll say it over and over again, I'm the only candidate in the race that has that qualification. I'm the only candidate who has devoted most of his adult life and most of his legal career, not just to public service, but to enforcing laws and enforcing the rule of law. I went to Iraq to help that country rebuild after decades and generations of dictatorial rule and to help them implement and enforce the rule of law. This is critically important right now because law enforcement is under siege. I mentioned to you that the second reason I'm running for Kansas Attorney General is because the citizens of this state want an attorney general who can stand up in a courtroom and competently, confidently, and persuasively argue on their behalf. I am the only candidate in the race who has spent their entire legal career in the courtroom, arguing tough cases, arguing significant cases, and proving that I can do it competently and I can win. I'm the only candidate in the race who is a seasoned, respected litigator, and I am the best qualified candidate in the race to actually credibly, competently push back on those issues that you and I have talked about today, whether it's federal overreach or filing suit to force the government to enforce the laws. I mentioned that the third reason I'm running for Kansas Attorney General is because at the same time that I'm vigorously defending our citizens and their interests in the courtroom, I can be a steady hand on the rudder of that office. I have spent a career dealing with the issues that the AG's office deals with every day, prosecuting criminal cases, defending civil cases, making sure crime victims' rights are protected, protecting consumers and investigating crimes through working with agencies like the KBI. I'm the only candidate in the race with that kind of experience. I'm the only candidate in the race who's prosecuted a death penalty case or who has had to make those tough decisions. And finally, I told you that I'm running for Kansas Attorney General because I have a passion for criminal justice issues and for national security issues. And, and I know from having worked in that office that the attorney general can do a lot of good for Kansans in those areas. This weekend I wrote an op-ed about the KBI last week releasing the 2020 crime index, right? That index shows that the violent crime rate in Kansas is up right now. And the murder rate is alarmingly I am the only candidate in this race who has dealt firsthand with those issues, and I am the candidate who is uniquely qualified to help the state and its citizens address those issues. I will bring down the violent crime rate in Kansas and help restore the rule of law. And finally, you and I touched just briefly on the fact that in Kansas, our, our businesses and our academic institutions, a lot of people don't realize the threat that they are under from malign foreign actors, okay? Foreign governments are sending people here to steal our intellectual property. This is a national problem, right? The Attorney General of the United States has something called the China Initiative that, that was started under Attorney General Sessions. Attorney General Barr doubled down on it. And, and thankfully, Attorney General Garland does not appear to be backing away from. But that presents an issue for us in Kansas because not only do we have leading edge academic institutions, okay? University of Kansas, on the cutting edge of aerospace, Kansas State University, on the cutting edge of bioag research, Pittsburgh State has a world class polymer research institute. And there are foreign actors present at those institutions stealing our intellectual property. Our business interests in the aerospace community tremendously at risk for the theft of their intellectual property. I'm the only candidate in the race who has spent years dealing with those issues. So thank you for giving me a couple extra. Yeah, this
0: intellectual property too. is something that has surfaced at KU in yeah. Lawrence at least once. And it involved China, I believe. Okay, so that was,
1: a, that was a case I was prosecuting, but oh, really? it, okay. It's one—it's the one I really can't talk about because it's still being prosecuted mm-hmm. just now by other. That's case. fine. That's so,
0: fine. Yeah, I just remember that one. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so, so now, now your
1: uh, now your chamber of commerce send off. Go for it. When I started in the DA's office in Topeka, prosecuting speeding tickets, I had no idea where my legal career would take me, and it's taken me across the country and around the world, and I'm very, very blessed to have been where I've been and done what I've done. But the proudest moment in my legal career thus far was the day that I got to stand before a military judge at Guantanamo Bay and say, Your Honor, my name is Tony Mativi and I represent the United States in the case against this alleged Al-Qaeda terrorist. I would be just as proud to stand in any courtroom in this state, any courtroom in the country, and say, Your Honor, my name is Tony Mativi And I represent the citizens of the state of Kansas. All right. I hope the citizens will give me that opportunity, Tim.
0: Yeah, we'll find out just about a year from now is when the primary is. Right. I want to thank our interesting guest today, Attorney General Candidate Tony Mativi, a Topeka Republican. Thanks for listening. I'm Tim Carpenter of the Kansas Reflector.